Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Yes, we are. We're also attempting to breathe, which has been a challenge this week for those of us on the east end of Long Island and throughout most of the Northeast. You guys see all of that orange haze? Looks very apocalyptic out there on some of these days, doesn't it? It's really creepy. Really it's creepy. Really creepy looking. The air was pea soup. Pea soup. All about all from those fires going on up in Canada. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about. We're actually doing a little bit of a roundtable today, just sort of throwing all sorts of topics and seeing what sticks. So that's where we're headed. Come along. That's Bill Sutton that you heard at the top of the podcast. Hey, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we also have Brendan O'Reilly with us today. Hey, Brendan. Hi, Annette. Hi, everybody. My name is Brendan. I'm the deputy managing editor. And Catherine G. Manu, a.k.a. Georgie, mm-hmm. is back with us. Haven't seen you in a while. Hey, Georgie. I know. I've been a little crazy with the magazines, but I'm really happy to be back. How's it going? I'm Georgie. I am one of the co-publishers of the Express News Group, sometimes known as Catherine Manu. <laughs> Usually the other way around. Georgie's work on <laughs> <laughs> we know you as Georgie. If they call you Catherine, we know it means business. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And also here is Joe Shaw. Hiya, Joe. Hey, Annette. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And I'm Annette Hankel, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And since we were kind of talking about the uh, the weird look of the sun, um, maybe we'll start with the air quality issue. And um, Brendan, I think this was something that you were kind of keen to weigh in on. Um, So what's going on out there? So due to wildfires in Canada, the whole Northeast just got covered with smoke last week. And on the first day, you didn't really hear too much about it unless you were looking it up, but the sky was white, right? And it looked like one of those days where it's like, oh, it's going to rain any minute now. And then by the next day, I think everybody knew by this second day like oh this is smoke from the canadian wildfires this isn't just like a cloudy sky and it progressively got worse so by uh wednesday everybody was saying it smells like a campfire i was thinking that my friend who works all the way up island he texted me hey it smells like a campfire at work we were inside the building at the express news group office and it smelled like smoke inside the building Mm -hmm. that's how bad it got and the air quality alerts which if you want to look up what it's like right now you can look at airnow.gov or you could actually look on the weather app on your iphone to see what it's like it went from unhealthy for sensitive groups to unhealthy up to very unhealthy over the course of the week and by the time you get to very unhealthy that's when even people who have no respiratory problems, they're not too young, they're not too old, even those people should limit their outdoor activities. It's not the time to be running. It's not the time to be going for a long walk. And if you had anything planned like a baseball game, you need to cancel that or reschedule. Not the time for me to be mowing my lawn then, right? (laughs) Never feels like the right time to mow the lawn. You're off the hook. So what are you guys feeling personally? I know my eyes have been kind of itchy and stuff, and I don't know if that's 
me or just making it up or that's a real symptom so no i was i had the same experience driving driving home the other night and it'd be wednesday afternoon and driving into riverhead and riverhead actually looked a little more um a little more hazy than than southampton and and my eyes were just burning and i had the windows closed in the car and and all that and it just permeated those um it was it was crazy just my eyes were were watering yeah, I have asthma, and so when the air is thick like that, it makes it a little tricky to breathe, a little, little uncomfortable to breathe. Um, it was noticeable, and I, I was really struck on Wednesday evening when we left the offices. Uh, I had heard, I, I had detected the odor of, you know, wildfire, bonfire in the air at some point, but boy, when we walked out of the office on Wednesday evening, I, I was just dumbfounded that was a whole different level of uh of yeah. of infiltration it was it was really bad so remember the hallway just smelled really really pungent. yeah i was because you and i walked out together and i was like yeah. wow it's not good not a good thing so um brendan do we know what to expect is it gonna alleviate i mean i haven't i haven't seen a lot of news about how those they're doing it fighting the fires but it sounded like there were hundreds of them out of control and that this may be something we're going to be dealing with for a while. Does anybody know? My concern is that this will be persistent. And even though right now it's clearing up, I get the impression that anything could still happen. Those wildfires could whip up again. There could be new ones. And if that's the case, we're going to see this be a recurring thing. Like, I really hope that's not what it comes down to. Uh, as of Friday, June 9th, the quality was really improving but that means other parts of the country to the south of us and the west of us are getting it worse right now so even though it's better for long island it doesn't mean it's great for everybody else um so at one point they were saying it's going to get worse before it gets better i'm hoping that we're in that get better phase now and it's going to stay that way i'm hoping that by the time the podcast drops on thursday morning uh we're not going to be talking about this anymore and that this is all in the past but we see something like this happen, and once it happens, that means it could very easily happen again. Yeah. One one thing I think it's important to note too that even though it feels and looks like it has cleared up, there are still a lot of particulates in in the air, and you need to be you need to be careful and pay attention to those websites that we mentioned earlier, and 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 find out what the uh, the air quality is in your area before you you move on. And just to plug another publication, you know, the New York Times has been doing a really great job of covering this. And um, they've had some really great interactive maps on their website, where you can actually see like the flow of smoke over the Northeast and where it's going. Um, again, we're recording this on June on June 9th and on June 10th, Saturday, we are actually supposed to get like another little band is supposed to sweep through. But then I believe what we read this morning was that um, there is going to be a shift, like a cold front coming in that's going to start pushing everything south. So, you know, fingers crossed. But I think like Brendan said, this is, you know, going to be a little bit of a new normal, hopefully not at this extent, but we're going to be dealing with things like this more and more as, you know, climate change and the effects of that becomes a greater part of our lives. And I think, you know, we're kind of seeing that really speed up in the last few years. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, you got to kind of pause and understand that we might be through this right now, but 
you know, wildfires are going to be kind of a thing that we're dealing with all the time. The irony, of course, is that your N95 masks, which you should have a whole uh, store of them, are really useful if you're going out. I mean, uh, some of the experts are recommending wearing an N95 mask. It can provide some filtration of the particulates in the air, as Bill mentioned, uh, so they can come in handy. So that means I have to go take it out of the scrapbook, right? So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dig right. it out of the scrapbook. I still yeah. got my little box of... Yeah, I still box. have... Don't let it go too far. I must have a hundred of them. They're readily um, available right here. Yeah. yeah, I keep mine in my car in the glove box. Huh. <laughs> Fun. So, um, so do we want to move on to Georgie? Do you want to talk about your topic since I know that you have to leave soon? Um, yeah. So another thing we just wanted to mention, just because he was, you know, such a big part of the East End media landscape, and certainly, you know, a part of our family at the Express News Group is, um, you know, we tragically um, lost a longtime photographer, um, Tom Kochi. Um, to a battle with pancreatitis on May 30th. Um, he passed away at North Shore University Hospital in Manhasset. And we've been following, you know, Tom's health struggle. Um, he was, you know, really battling this. Um, his wife, Pat, who, you know, they've been together forever, it feels like, and have this really special love story um, that Michelle Traring actually explores a little bit in um, a beautiful obit she wrote for Tom. Um, but Pat, you know, was keeping everybody abreast on social media along with their daughter, Shonda. Um, but it's a big loss, you know, anybody who spent any time at most events on the East end, especially on the South Fork knows Tom, like you would recognize him, you know, his white hair, his black shirts and black jeans. Um, you know, he could be found at the Sag Harbor Music Festival, at Harbor Fest, at basically any big event out here. Um, and he's going to really be missed. It's a, it's a big loss for, for all of us, um, you know, and, and certainly of course for his family. And I feel like we were seeing even more of him after, you know, Michael Heller had left the area and that was, he was, um, you know, a photographer we used so much, Michael was, and then Tom stepped in to just take a lot of photos after Michael had moved on. Um, so yeah, it's super sad. We used to see Tom everywhere. And Tom wasn't just like a great like news and event photographer, which he was. He was fantastic at that. Um, but he was also just a, a really great um, arts photographer, portrait photographer, fashion photographer. Like, and he kind of explored his art um, in all ways that he could, whether he was being paid for it or not. You know, which is of course the sign of a you know a real artist committed to their craft. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, after, you know, everybody can heal a little bit, um, you know, maybe we can, you know, work with the family and look at ways that we can showcase his art, um, you know, moving forward so that, you know, he's, you know, always remembered. We, we did, we did share some of his photos uh, with his feature obituary that's up at 27east.com and it, um, along with the obituary and some photos of Tom and Pat, uh, there are some examples of his artier work uh and he was a really talented guy just a good guy too and it, it's it's a demonstration you know one of the things i always say about what we do for a living is i always call what we do stone soup if you know the whole 
the whole um, parable about that, where everybody brings something. Uh, we count on the community a lot, and we count on some people in the community more than others. And Tom was one of those people that was a freelancer, but he was part of the family. I mean, he was just every bit as much important to the paper as anybody on staff full time. Uh, it's a big loss, and I, I, I we're we're all feeling it, no question about it. April Gornick, um, you know, an artist from North Haven who we all know very, very well, um, very involved in the Sag Harbor community, co-founder of the church with her husband, um, Eric Fischel. She had like a really beautiful quote about him in the obit. She said he was the kind of person you would see somewhere and feel little assurance by him being there because he was always friendly. He was always even tempered. He was always gentle. I think he had a poet's soul. Mm-hmm. She's right. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, it's hard to say that, you know, when you show up at an event or something and you're always worried, especially if you're working it, whether or not you're going to have photos. Whenever I saw Tom, I'm like, oh, I'm covered. You know, it's just so funny. It's just sort of like a, it's like seeing a friend at a party where you don't know anybody, you know, it's true. In the photographer circle too, there's, there's mm-hmm. some aggressive ones and Tom was Tom was one of those you knew there wasn't going to be any drama. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no fist fights were coming with Tom in an event. <laughs> you just had to look for the guy wearing all black. Yeah. yeah. Georgie touched on it too. Tom and Pat have just such a great love story. And um, they got together when Pat was just a teenager. She was very young, um, but they stayed together their entire lives. Uh, I love that their wedding was was sort of a happening. Uh, they they put up posters around Brooklyn, I think it was, right? Was it Brooklyn or Queens? I can't remember. Uh, but they had strangers at their wedding as a result. It was like, come to the wedding. Uh, it was like a performance, <laughs> like a performance event. Uh, that was, they both came out of, of the 60s and, and that kind of, and, and that was always sort of an atmosphere around them, which I thought was great. They, they just had this, this creative, uh, very warm, atmosphere uh i think we're all hurting for pat because i think it's going to be a big loss for her yeah they were just one of those couples you know where you can't really it's hard to imagine one without the other we all know those couples and they were definitely um one of those local support comes from the law firm of toomey latham shea kelly dubin and Raro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. The story this week that I thought was interesting was... um... Southampton Village, we've been, we've sort of known about this behind the scenes and sort of off the record, and there have been rumors about it for more than a year. But uh, because a public meeting, it came up at a public meeting for the Southampton Town Board, actually, uh, word got out about the fact that 
there is a plan for a, a major park right beside Agawam Park in Southampton Village. Um, it would be along Pond Lane. It would be actually on the other side of Pond Lane from Lake Agawam. And it's more than 11 acres. And so the deal is the plan that the village has to, to help clean up the lake involves an algae skimmer. And they need a place to install that algae skimmer's infrastructure to work. And on the other side of the lake, uh, in a little CPF piece of property is a perfect spot for that algae skimmer. So in order to do that there, that's not a CPF approved use of that property. So that, what they would have to do is they'd have to take that property off of the CPF. So they need to put something on it to replace that. So that's how this became public is that the town actually is planning to use CPF funds to purchase these 11 acres along Pond Lane that would then be set aside as a park to replace that lost CPF land for the algae skimmer. So it's a little complicated, but that's how it came to light. And we don't have all the details yet, but the town and village officials are talking about it being a world-class public garden is the way they're describing it. So it would have walking trails and it would, it would be designed not just to be open space like uh, Agawam Park, it would be public gardens to walk through. And, and the talk is that it would be a real destination kind of a spot. Uh, it's, it's exciting because the other thing it would do is it would kind of tie together the lake, Agawam Park, the concert property, which is right between basically the, the, the existing park and this space along with, uh, I think there's another property in between there. Um, but it would sort of tie it all in together and create a real uh, recreational space around Lake Agawam in a way that, that, that exists now, but, but really could be bolstered. So it's, it's, kind of, it's a kind of a central park type feel, right? I, sure. And, and the word transformational was used by some of the village officials and talking about what they have in mind there. So uh, it's a big deal. And um, we're gonna wait for more details because I think there are more details to come about what exactly this is gonna look like. And I think they're still sort of setting up a lot of the details about that. I think the, the public release of this information got ahead of when I think the village wants to make a, a much more public statement about what they have in mind. So can I ask, like, how is it possible that there's still 11 undeveloped acres in the middle of Southampton Village? Mm. I just find that like an amazingly large parcel. Somebody there. bought it specifically to make sure it didn't get developed. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. I think there were housing proposals, uh, at least in conversation for, for some of that property, and it got bought to, to protect that from happening. And I think it's important to note, Joe said recreation, uh, it's passive recreation. So we're yes. not anticipating baseball fields. We're not anticipating yeah. a place for your ultimate Frisbee league. It would be like a park that you walk through. Mm -hmm. Hiking trails, uh, gardens that you would walk through. It would be that yeah. kind of thing. So was the property already purchased by CPF funds? No, what, what happened was uh, a philanthropist, John Paulson, who a lot of people are, are familiar with, um, an investment banker in his name, he and his wife have their name on the emergency room at Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. And I believe he owns property along the lake. 
And so he stepped forward and actually purchased these properties to sort of hold them until the town could come in and buy it with the CPF. The idea was they would keep it preserved from, from having buildings on them to work something out. And this is the, the thing that got worked out. And uh, it, it actually just lined up perfectly, I think, with what the village needs to do with the algae skimmer uh, to try and clean up Lake Agawam. So this whole idea kind of has the support of the Lake Agawam Conservancy too, which is a nonprofit group that was created uh, by the, the property owners around the lake and they're in support of all this. That's great. Yeah, it's a big, it's going to be a big deal, I think, when we get more uh, word about what exactly they have in mind. And, and let's be frank. I, I mean, I think that Agawam Park is sort of listless and the, the lake itself has become, you know, polluted. It's not an attractive feature of the village. And I think the, the village has made a real effort to try and do something about that. And this is just another step towards turning that area into a real draw for people to come to Southampton Village. It would be a reason to come visit. Uh, I think the village needs that. And I think that the lake needs that. I think that this is all hand, it, it goes hand in glove with a lot of things that are happening in Southampton Village right now. So it's exciting. Hey. Um, so Bill, do you want to jump in and talk about uh, another topic? Sure. So um, I, I was really intrigued by this story for a couple of reasons. So the um, East Hampton School Board on uh, the other night on Tuesday on June 6th um, voted um, with, with a 5-1 majority actually to, um, to move forward with a proposal by a district resident, John Edwards, who wants to raise about $800,000 to install an LED lighting system um, at the at the athletic turf field um, behind East Hampton High School. Um, and I, I'm intrigued for, for a couple of reasons. N number one, um, it, it sounds like it's really, uh, that, that lighting is really needed there. I, I think that, you know, you have a lot of schools that, that want lighting because they want to have, you know, their Friday night homecoming games or, or whatever. But there's a lot of issues in, in, in East Hampton. Number one, it's so far out on, on the end of the island that when teams are coming out from other school districts um, to the west of, of the east end, by the time they can get out to the school, sometimes they can't play an entire game because it's it's after school. They, they start at, you know, at, at four o'clock, five o'clock. Um, and in the fall, it gets dark so early that they just have to kind of call the call the games. Um, and and in that fitting in with that is is the uh, the the school bus driver shortage, which makes um, you know makes some districts um, unavailable to come earlier too. So so lights are kind of of, of needed there, and and they talked about that at um, at a couple different uh, the last couple. East Hampton School Board meeting, so it it seems like you know that's a, it's a it's it's a needed uh, it's a needed thing there. The problem is there's some neighbors, of course, and anytime you're talking about installing lights at a, at a school, you're you're going to have some some uh, concerns from from neighbors, and usually you can kind of get away with with saying something like, "Well, don't build a house next to a school," except <laughs> in this case, the neighbors were there first. Yeah. And so there's some houses behind the school and, and 
these neighbors are are claiming that um, that they were promised years ago that uh, that the school would never install lights um, on, on the field. So they're they're a little concerned. And it's not you think about these neighbors. It's not just the lights. It's everything that comes with having a night game. You're going to have you know really? you're going to have light. You're going to have noise. You're going to have crowds. You're going to have uh, you know pep rally. I don't know if they have if the you know, in, in in my day, the school band would come out and 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 play for night games or whatever. But hey, you're not just talking about one night a week, probably either. You're talking about about multiple nights where you're going to have um, you know noise and and you know kids milling about and and adults milling about. And if um, you know some of the adult soccer players get involved with this then then you've just got you're, you're turning kind of a, a bucolic area in, in, into something different so georgie as as the mother of a daughter who's getting ready to go to east hampton high school next year um what is your thought and also as an alum of east hampton <laughs> high school what's your thought on the lights on the field um yeah so for the record um you know i am an alumnus of east hampton high school i was not a, an athlete so i you know, whether there were lights on the field or not did not impact my high school experience at all. My daughter, who is going to be in ninth grade next year, is 100% an athlete. And um, and so it, that could impact her. You know, it's a really interesting conversation. I um, read Desiree Keegan's story, um, you know, last week on it. And, um, you know, it's, it's a tough debate because um, Bill mentioned, you know, some of these neighbors, they've owned their properties for generations, yeah. um, you know, long before the school was there. And when the school was renovated, I think it was about a decade ago. Um, it was a pretty big renovation um, where they added a cafeteria and, you know, just expanded the school out. Um, they told members of the school board that when that big renovation happened to the school property, one of the things they were promised was that there would not be lights. And, you know, I, I think Bill's right. You know, one of the concerns is, you know, once the lights are installed, does it become like kind of this community space where you're not just seeing kids sports teams playing, but maybe adult sports teams playing members of the school board um, and the administration seemed to, um, you know, say, you know, that they would want to put basically some restrictions in place, um, you know, if they moved forward with this to make sure that really it's only students and student activities and school activities that would be able to use um, the school lighting. Um, but it's a, it's tough. East Hampton, you know, we're like known for being this, you know, recreation destination, but, you know, year round, we are really just like a small town in a lot of ways right. still. Um, an agriculture community, a lot of the land around East Hampton High School is populated by farms and local farms that have been there again for generations. Um, so we've got like this very rural, small town feel. Um, but, you know, students and parents, of course, want the resources for their kids that you would expect um, you know, at, you know, any school district, um, including in like, you know, more heavily populated areas where I don't think you see as much of this debate come up when you're talking about athletic fields. So um, I think if they put restrictions in place, um, you know, and are really mindful about the neighbors, um, I think that they probably can find a path forward um, where not everybody is like totally happy, <laughs> but it's a compromise, you know, and I think that that's what they're going to have to do. You know, you're going to have to work with your neighbors. 
I, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. So, so these are LED lights, which, um, or, or would be LED lights, which, which have a much, um, lower impact than, you know, than, than, than regular lights would. Um, there, there, there's a, be there's better controls for them as well. I guess they can be controlled from, you know, the coaches could have smartphones, a smartphone app that would turn the lights off when they're done. So you don't have to to rely on on district employees and stuff, and they would be more focused on the field. You wouldn't get that spillage, that light pollution spillage. What 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 interested me also about the story though is that um, you know if this moves forward, the 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 whole idea of you know community members coming together and raising the funds as a donation to the school, yeah. which I guess isn't a hundred percent unprecedented. But I mean, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, Georgia, you were saying, you know, the school has to have a lot of controls. So so what happens when when these families and, and community members raise the money for these lights and then all of a sudden the school wants to say, you know, have controls and you might have somebody come back and say, no, we raised the money for those lights and you should you should have them on, you know, Friday nights and you should do this and you should do that with it. And it should be a community resource. And I think that. You know, I, I think the school would would in accepting that donation would would make it clear that they had control of the lights. But I think anytime you have donations like that leading leading to you know to a project like this, there's always there's always a little bit of a question as as to how that works out. I think also another like it seemed like a a lot of the concern also wasn't just about the lighting, like you said. It was also yeah. about like what comes with the lighting in terms of like do are we gonna have these night games and now like lots of um teenagers like congregating and not sure. that teenagers are all delinquents, but like, <laughs> you know, how do we like police that? And um um, I believe the superintendent of schools was talking about how they're, you know, working with faculty to basically like train them in security um, so that they can have like increased security presence, you know, basically on the field um, for these night events um, to make sure that like nothing gets out of control, um, you know, which can happen, um, you know, all read the news stories. I mean, I, I don't see it happening that much in East Hampton, but you know, you never know. Could be uh, a big rivalry, Georgie. You never know when those those bad <laughs> schools show up to rumble. I mean, honestly, Bill's not wrong though, and the district isn't wrong about the impact on student athletes because of how far out we are on the islands. I mean, I, Gavin, my husband, the co-publisher, who's a sports writer um, before he was anything else in journalism and a sports editor, and we've talked over our kitchen table for years about how Section 11, which is the governing body of school athletics, um, really needs to restructure um, so that you know, the East End is kind of like on its own because with the busing shortage situation, with the bus driver situation, with like just the time of days, I can't tell you how many games, even this spring where we've got pretty long days, we saw canceled um, no. just because like Hampton Bays couldn't get a team out to East Hampton. Um Although I guess Hampton Bays would still be a part of it if we had a restructured um, athletic program. But, you know, I mean, there there is a big issue when you have schools that are even further west coming out. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's really challenging um, for student athletes. We always hear the horror stories about kids coming back from up island games on buses doing homework at like 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night. Um, 
Yeah. I don't want to be, I don't want to be that guy, but it, there's also a safety aspect to this. I mean, you know, if, if yeah. you're playing field hockey and it's, you get into the gloaming and you yeah. can't see the ball. I mean, that can be dangerous. I, I, you could, you know, you can really risk um, someone getting hurt. So, you know, there, there's a legitimate argument to be made that I, I'm not sure in this day and age. And, and by the way, this does have some Marsden spillover. Yeah. Uh, it's really the same <laughs> argument that I'm not sure in this day and age, 2023, that if you have a school, lights on an outdoor athletic field are kind of necessary. I mean, I just think they are. Um, I don't know that, that it's, it's an exceptional request by any of the school districts who want that. It, it's just something you got to have. Um, and I think even the neighbors in East Hampton, and I would be upset if I were the neighbors who I think probably did get at least a verbal promise at some point that there wouldn't be lights. I get that. But I, I just, I, I think there's a greater good thing here. And I do think Bill pointed out the LED lights right. give you more options than, than if you put lights on a field 20 years ago, it was a whole different thing. I think yeah. nowadays the technology you can limit some of the impacts of that stuff. And nobody's suggesting lights should be on until midnight or anything like that. Uh, but a school is a school and it should be able to operate in all the typical ways a school operates. And that includes after school activities like sports. It would be interesting to find a field that maybe has those lights if we could see how they look. You know, I don't know if there's any other schools that have installed this. Mm. But. I'm sure there are, yeah. um, but also like, let's not let the, I mean, so often we have these conversations and it's like, you know, about the doom and gloom and the potential like awfulness of things that could happen, but also like think about um, the kind of community building um, in a community that really, you know, is watching its year round population get smaller and smaller every year. You know, those like Friday night light games really bring people together and can be a really positive, wonderful thing for the whole community, you know, rallying around their student athletes and, you know, just like spending a nice Friday night doing something, you know, you know, very like Americana <laughs> in our small little town. You know what I mean? <laughs> a few years ago, my daughter was playing clarinet in the band at East Hampton High School. And it was like, they had to play in the pep band for the Friday night homecoming game. And they brought in the portable lights. And I saw, I mean, that was probably the most parents I ever saw right? who also had kids in the school district. Cause I, you know, when you're working full time, it's like kid on the bus, kid home on the bus. But that was like the one night when I saw, Oh no, who's that girl that she's talking to. It's like, Oh, that's my friend, blah, blah, blah. You know, just like all of those relationships that were sort of um, theoretical, I could really see and run into parents who, you know, I hadn't seen in since probably the school conferences or home or the, you know, back to school night. Um, it's a really yeah. great point. It's it's a great point that that the lights the lights do bring people together for for events too and and that's not a small thing. Hi, this is Michael Wright. I'm a reporter for the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27East.com. 
I cover East Hampton Town and follow important stories about the environment, including the coming South Fork Wind Farm, its impact on the fishing industry, and other water quality issues. We follow East Hampton Town and village government, and I'm asking the tough questions and providing you with important answers. My colleagues and I in the editorial department work hard as watchdogs for this community, but we can't do it without our subscribers. If you find the work we're doing valuable to you, please subscribe by visiting 27east.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you very much. And so we have one more story that I'm going to throw out there. And, you know, it seems like all of our stories are kind of interesting. All of them are sort of like things that are not, um, are not solved or done or figured out. And this is just another one of those. And that is a um, 47 foot long male humpback that was found dead, um, deceased in Shinnecock Bay, on June 1st and um, had to have been, had to be um, necropsy. They brought in some marine biologists to see what might've happened to it. It was in pretty bad shape from what I understand. Robert D. Giovanni from the Atlantic Marine Conservation Society. Um, he was on the beach and, and undertaking the postmortem. And we'd kind of hoped to, to get Rob on the, on the podcast today. We weren't able to, but maybe we'll do that at a future, a future date. Um, but it's it's interesting because there's a big controversy, people thinking that perhaps the the wind farms that are being built off the coast are responsible for it. Um, but from what I've been reading, and I don't know if you guys can weigh in on this too, it's like mostly a lot of the problem seems to have been um, uh, boat strikes that have that have uh, ships that have hit whales in the shipping channels uh, around New York City. Um, so I think the jury's still out on a lot of the a lot of the deaths. There's been quite a few, but we do have a larger increase in the fish that are coming in the Manhattan that is bringing in a lot of um, other fish looking to feed on them. Um, and there's also increased shipping since the pandemic. I think a lot of the the, the ships have gotten larger that are bringing in um, goods, and it seems like it's sort of a bad situation where the whales are often found in the same area. So first things first, Rob DiGiovanni and other experts we've talked to across the board say there is no evidence that the wind farms are to blame for this, um, that it's it's not that's not the cause. And, and the second point is, I think, an intriguing one because it's a little counterintuitive. This actually might be a sign that things are good. Uh, it means that the humpback whale population and the whale population in general has really rebounded from um, area. You know, it was it was down a bit a couple of decades ago and there were some rules put in place to protect the whales more. And since then, the whale populations have grown and they are in our waters more frequently now. And as you said, Annette, I think that the, the Menhaden, the bunker uh, population has also exploded. That's brought a lot of marine life in closer to shore, which brings the whales in closer to shore too, because they feed on the Menhaden and they feed on, 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 you know, other, other marine life that's closer to shore. And that gets them into the travel lanes and so you get more you get more boat strikes and and that's an unfortunate side effect but it may not be a sign of a problem it may actually be a sign of a healthy population mm -hmm. and more whales means more dead whales being spotted and this one by the way and that you mentioned a 47 foot male humpback whale it actually was already dead 
and its carcass actually washed in through Shinnecock Inlet and into Shinnecock Bay, which is rare. That doesn't usually happen. Uh, so that kind of got everybody's attention. Now, if you if you look at if you look at the pictures of it on on twenty seven east dot com, you can just you can see how de deteriorated the carcass was. It had been it had been dead for a, a fairly long time. Sharks had begun to feed on it. Sharks had been feeding on it. Yeah, I I wonder. Yeah, I'm looking at the pictures now. It's pretty. Whoa. Um, looks like Dana got pretty close. She did, and and yeah, and I mean that's not atypical. I mean I think I think when we yeah. see whales, um, and when they when they beach or when when they get themselves into trouble or when a carcass is found that's kind of typical you see a, a a lot of decomposition you see a lot of injury you see a lot of predation by other by other fish um you know that's just sort of nature it's just i think is what we're seeing so I wonder, has, it, has there been any, have we heard anything about there actually being any like real concerted effort by any of the scientific organizations to really put to rest the idea of whether or not wind farms are causing this or if it's all bowstruck? I just wonder if there's been a, a larger effort to document and really put out the science to dampen down some of the theories or explain them. I, I can't speak to that directly, but I'll just say that I think it's hard to prove a negative. And yeah. I think that the yeah. experts all along have been unequivocal that that this is not what's happening and it only takes a couple of people to raise it as an issue for it to stay out there as an issue and and i i don't think there's i, I don't think there's necessarily been an in-depth study because i don't think there's any reason to do an in-depth study there's not any evidence of that um so the logic goes kind of like this from from that from that camp of of people the, the wind farms are new and, and all of a sudden we're seeing whale whale strandings and you know and um and and deaths but D. Giovanni pointed out that that those have been going on for for generations and generations and 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 generations and and that there's no higher number necessarily um than than there have been that kind of fluctuates um you know up and down over over time the number of, of um um, you know, whales that are stranded or, or carcasses that, that wash up and, and that type of thing. So I, I don't, I, you know, it doesn't seem that that logic holds up is what I'm saying. There's some conversation about the construction of, you know, building offshore wind turbines can have some effect on marine life while that's going on. But I know that, that, Every wind farm project, they they take steps to try and limit that, and uh, I don't think this project is any different. And I don't know that we can say that there's zero impact on marine life from a project like that, but we can say with a great deal of confidence that this number of strandings and deaths of whales is due to other factors and not that. That's not what's causing it. It's a good thing probably because it means you have a healthy population that's growing and that just means more whales uh, interacting with more humans in a bad way, uh, which isn't great. And more whales just means that, that there's more, you know, a healthier system for more food for them to, to feed on. I mean, D. Giovanni, you know, referred to it yeah. kind of as a, as a buffet uh, right now, because there's just the, the, the waters are so healthy that, you know, that there's so much growing in the waters for the whales to feed on that, um, you know, that that just accounts for more whales.
It would also seem to me that, you know, the, the, the whole idea that, I mean, gas and oil exploration and drilling and well wells, I mean, how come those have never been brought up as a potential source for whale deaths either? You know, it's just sort of interesting that they're only focusing on the wind power when you have other um, things going on in the ocean out there. And, so, and you even have nuclear submarines beaming out sonar or whatever, but that's never really... Well, this, yeah, the, the subs definitely affect right. the whales. There's plenty of evidence of that. Yeah, we haven't pulled our nuclear mm -hmm. submarines out of the oceans. And it, it does really amuse me the, the illogic of people who are anti-windmill where they will say, like, oh, there's a lot of upfront carbon costs to, inst to installing windmills, so windmills aren't great. Or they'll say, oh, they're building in the ocean, and that's not great. It's like, well, there's also upfront carbon costs to building ocean drilling and you're building in the ocean when you're building ocean drilling so why do you only find wind farms objectionable but you don't find the drill out there in the ocean the same place where the whales are to be a problem for you yes there's an upfront cost to build anything but over the duration of its life a wind farm will reduce carbon in the atmosphere so it's really people just choose their theories of why the whales are dying just based on their ideology and not based on the evidence and not based on logic. It does feel like it's kind of backwards. Like a lot of people who would normally be environmentalists are the ones that are saying, stop the wind power because I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it yeah. certainly has some strange bedfellows, uh, an aspect really? of that, but kind of like that, kind of like vaccines. It, it is kind of <laughs> like that. And, and I mean, I think, I, you know, I think we're getting off topic a little bit. I think fear is is a factor in all of that and i think people people worry about things we're not that familiar with and i get that but it, it's important to stay logical and it's important to rely on experts who uh, you know folks who study whales they should be the first ones raising the concerns and if they're not i think i think we can we can take that as evidence that that you know there's more going on here but uh anyway it, it's as a guy who grew up in Pittsburgh, it's kind of cool to be able to see the pictures of, a, you know, a giant whale like that. I mean, you hate to see it mm. in that kind of condition and circumstances, but just to get a, a chance to see a whale is an amazing thing. They're just amazing creatures. And uh, one that's that size uh, is always it's I remember, you know, seeing them when they've stranded before, too. And, and it's really um, it's it's really pretty breathtaking to see one up close. So, Joe, maybe we can get you off to the coast of Spain, and you can see the orcas that are jumping on. Yeah, boats. they're they're that? turning on on boats, and and <laughs> they're turning. It's actually it's read, Moby Dick. There's a theory. I mean, orcas are smart animals, and that they may be yeah. holding a grudge uh, for some boat strikes or something. That 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 they're they're coming back at the boats because they see them as a threat because they've harmed them or harmed, you know, their, their family members or whatever. It's, I think there's a movie. So speaking of that, aren't you reading later tonight at the Moby Dick marathon, which is all about a whale with vengeance. <laughs> I am. Yeah. There's a, sort of a, a modern day yeah. uh, Moby Dick. No question. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. The whale, the whales and the orcas take vengeance. Well, if you've never read the tale of the Essex, which Moby Dick is based on, it's a fascinating true story of a, a whale that took revenge off a Nantucket whaling ship off the coast of uh, South America, like in 1820. 
just mm-hmm. rammed it, rammed it and made those guys all go in the water and turn to all sorts of dastardly deeds in order to survive. So what fun. A vast ye matey. It's nature's turning on us. Yeah. <laughs> the sun is blotted out and the whales are getting revenge. Can you blame yes. them? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's true. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.